I'm not sure how many of you have read Leviticus 16. It's a very important text to our understanding of what Christ's work is. They say that most Bible study reading plans die somewhere in Leviticus, so maybe you've never made it there. But um, our, day, our plan today is to look at that text in greater detail. So Leviticus 16. The dilemma of the human condition is that mankind as they are cannot be in the presence of God. Our sin is an offense to his holiness. Ever since the fall of our covenant head in Genesis 3.23, nothing has been right between God and man. Mankind was warned, given a prohibition to not eat of the fruit of one tree as a test of righteousness. And Adam, Adam ate and he fell. And when Adam fell, his guilt was imputed to all mankind. So when he fell, we all fell. When he ate, we all ate. When he transgressed, we all transgressed. And that solitary sin, even though it was by proxy, is enough to damn us all for eternity. That's how serious God's holiness is, that each and every one of us deserved hell on account of Adam's sin. And while God promised that eating of the tree would result in death, what did we see in Genesis chapter 3? No one dies. They certainly died spiritually, but what is remarkable in the face of such impassable holiness is that man was not struck dead the moment that he ate. We see shortly after his transgression, the transgression of man against God's law, his grace and his mercy. God's mercy in not striking them dead and his grace in covering their nakedness with animal skins, indicating that a death did actually occur. A death wrought by God himself. Now, mind you, that was just a type of things to come and that's kind of what we've seen through our studies in the, in the Pentateuch. We see that theme continued in Abraham and Isaac and through the Passover, but those examples were just types. And we see that these types, the animal skins, the ram in the thicket, the Passover lamb, these were never ultimately sufficient to restore the relationship between God and man. In these early types, we see a, a precedent irrevocably established that in order to be restored to full fellowship with God, there must be a comprehensive and conclusive way to deal with the problem of sin. Our text today illustrates the appointed way of access to God, which comes only through propitiation, atonement, death, by way of a substitute, an intercessor, a mediator. So Leviticus 16 then is the, the theological center of the book of Leviticus, as well as the theological center of the book of the entire Pentateuch. So this chapter in a way that no other chapter does in scripture shows that the way to access God is by atonement and no other method. Chapters 1 to 15 of Leviticus show all the various uncleanness of man and how they are to be remedied, right? All the vertical ways that you can deal with your sin with one another. And then when you come to chapter 16, you see firsthand the inviolable holiness of God put on full display. This is an extraordinarily rich passage. It's a passage which deals with the day of atonement and the ritual that was required by the high priest on that great day. On this day, there was an all-encompassing sin offering which was offered up not only for the high priest, not only for the other priests of his household, but for the whole of Israel. Because to draw near to a holy God required a cleansing from sin. And while Israel was the apple of God's eye, he calls them Israel, mine elect, the treasure of his heart, the beneficiaries of his promises, his affection in life. Israel, just like us here today, was made up of sinners. And a holy God cannot commune with sinners. And so sin has to be dealt with. And this all-encompassing yearly ritual was the shadow of how sin was to be dealt with that would one day come to fruition in reality in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So again, it's fitting to once again to take a short break from the book of Hebrews to study this important concept of what Jesus's priesthood was by studying the type of inferior priesthood that preceded him, the, the, the priesthood that foreshadowed him. 
And one day we'll get there and you'll see in Hebrews 9 and 10, an explanation of the fulfillment of Leviticus 16 and the priesthood and the sacrifices of Jesus Christ, the one to whom all of these things were meant to point to. But I want to zero in on three things that we will learn from our passage in Leviticus 16. So if you look at Leviticus 16, I believe that there are kind of two pervasive concepts, the purity of the priest and in turn the people and the perfection of the sacrifice. Those are the two kind of things that you see. We're going to look at the first of those here today, the purity of the priest, right? It's explained in three ways. So let me give you my outline for those of you who are keeping track that way, and I'll come back to this. So first, we're going to look at a clean representative. That's verses one to four. Second, a pure substitute. That's verses five to 10. And then third, a flawless intercessor, verses 11 to 13. So a clean representative, a pure substitute, and a flawless intercessor. So let's look at the first of those as I read our text. We'll look at verses one to four first. And it reads this. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of his two sons, the two sons of Aaron. When they had approached the presence of the Lord and died, the Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, or he will die. For when I appear in the cloud over the mercy seat, Aaron shall enter the holy place with this, with a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen tunic and the linen undergarments shall be next to his body. And he shall be girded with the linen sash and the attired with the linen turban. These are holy garments. Then he shall bathe his body in water and put them on. So let's pause right there. The Holy of Holies was the focus of the Shekinah glory of God, where he dwelt between the cherubim. So it is protected with the most serious of punishments, which would befall anyone who in any subtle way would offend this most holy place. You see, the sacredness of God was on display. So it's lethal for anyone who is not approved by God because they in turn are bringing sin before God. So violating holy things, defiling God by defiling his sanctuary is of the utmost importance to consider. There is always death for sin. There is a penalty for making light of God's holy statutes. And we today should take our time, even as we consider, even as we come to his word, about the seriousness with which we come before the presence of such a holy God. For even the priests had to do that in the Old Testament. On the year, once a year, Aaron and Aaron alone as a high priest was allowed to go into the most holy place. Our text picks up on the heels of an event where Aaron's two sons presumed that they could just beseech God however they wanted. Unfortunately for them, it was not according to the manner that God had prescribed. Their offering to God was described as strange fire. And in great fire, God rained down and consumed both Nadab and Abihu. They were in the holy place, not the holy of holies, but the second closest that anyone could get to the presence of God. And they offered this unprescribed offering and paid the penalty for that sin with their very lives. And so on the heels of that, we see Leviticus 16, where Aaron is told how to go into the presence of God, where his two sons were just slain for offering a sacrifice that was not acceptable to God. I mean, think about how Aaron must have felt. He had just buried his two sons, and now God is giving him instructions on what he must do. He must take enormous care to follow all of God's prescriptions so that sin can be dealt with. And sin can only be dealt with in the very presence of a holy God. You can't deal with it on your own. You can't deal with it on your own terms or your own merits because you have to deal with it in the presence of him who is holiness himself, the one whose name is holy. Israelites outside of the tribe of Levi could not serve in the tabernacle. Even Israelites from within the tribe of Levi could serve in the tabernacle, but not all of them could administer sacrifices. Only those Levites who were descendants of Aaron could be priests. They were allowed to present sacrifices to God on the bronze altar, which was just outside the tent, and to burn incense to God on the altar of incense, which was just inside the tent. And finally, 
Only Aaron himself, as the high priest, could enter into the Holy of Holies, the innermost room of the tent, to present the blood of a sacrifice in the very presence of God. Now you're probably asking yourself, well, why is there this kind of tiered system of approaching God? Because as the theme of the book of Leviticus makes clear, God was indicating that he is set apart. He is holy. So approaching him was no trivial thing, no thing of familiarity, no small matter. What's also important to know is that the Day of Atonement was also set apart from all the other national holidays in Israel. Unlike the other national gatherings, the Day of Atonement was not a feast or a festival. It was not an occasion for carefree celebration. In fact, the Day of Atonement is the only portion of Scripture in the entire Bible where fasting is commanded, which you see in verse 31 of our chapter. If Aaron was going to represent the people in the very presence of God, he would need to take care of his own sins first. After all, he would meet the same end as his sons if he defiled the Holy of Holies with his own guilt while atoning for the guilt of the people. You see, he needed to be clean. Furthermore, because he held the highest spiritual office in the nation, as he represented the people, his personal sins would fall upon the people. So he needed to symbolically cleanse himself before he could perform this serious task of representation. The high priest stood as the head of all the priests, the one to whom Israel looked to for spiritual guidance and leadership. He was a representative the high priest's sins, while public or private, had widespread impact that affected all of the people. Just as Adam represented all of mankind in his first sin, so too did the high priest in a way represent the community of believers in his office. Therefore, if he was not properly prepared to represent the people, then his failure would not only leave them without a representative for their sins, but would also contribute further guilt upon them. Of course, to many modern ears, the idea of this kind of representation, it just seems unfair. It seems unjust. But remember, it, it goes both ways. If you need someone to represent you before God, which you do, then your representative's life has ramifications for yours, whether good or bad. The Israelites were no exception to this. So to make sure that the high priest was a suitable representative in order to avoid judgment for himself and the people, Moses instructed Aaron to perform two sacrifices, a bull for a sin offering just prior to his other priestly duties and a ram for a burnt offering at the end. And you see these mentioned in verses three and four, of the text I just read. The bull was to be offered first as the offering for his own sin. The sin offering, which is described in Leviticus 4, verse 3. Leviticus 4, 3. And it says this. It says, if the appointed priest or the anointed priest sins so as to bring guilt on the people, then let him offer to the Lord a bull without defect as a sin, as an offering for the sin that he has committed. The burnt offering of the ram spoken of to be performed rather or after the finished work, right? After the work of the Holy of Holies is described in Leviticus 1, 2 to 3. It says this, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the, from the herd of the flock. If this offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it, a male Without defect, he shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. So as opposed to the other sacrifices in which the animals would be partially eaten afterwards earlier in the book of Leviticus, this animal was completely burned up by fire on the altar. And that's why it's called a burnt offering. The entirety of this sacrifice being burned up symbolizes the offerer's complete dedication to the Lord. To that end, the only person who could ever make atonement in the Holy of Holies, the innermost place of the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant was housed, was the high priest. So after being instructed concerning his own personal sacrifices that would need to be offered, Aaron was commanded to bathe his body and put on the holy garments, the holy linen tunic, the holy undergarments. This clothing was dramatically different than the, the normal outfit the high priest traditionally wore. Aaron is to observe this strict and elaborate ritual where he has to take off his high priestly garments, which were decorated, right? They were adorned with a lot of embellishment. 
He was to put on basic clothing. You see, the high priest's typical outfits described in Exodus 28, it was to be dazzling, ornate, intended to display the glory and beauty of, of the priest. The normal outfit was gold and purple, lined with gold chains. They had 12 stones in them, one for each of the tribes of Israel. But on the Day of Atonement, the clothing was much simpler. Four basic garments, all white linen, an outfit even more plain than the normal priests. It was something like a, a linen tunic, right? It was, it was white. It was the common clothing that a slave would wear. He may be the great high priest of Israel, but when he comes into the presence of God, he is nothing more than a slave. He has no rights. He must then bathe. This is to highlight the necessity of cleanliness to perform sacrifices and the holiness necessary to enter the presence of God. He had to bathe five times that day. He had to wash his hands and his feet 10 times so that when he comes into the presence of God, he's clean. So why all this elaborate, you know, clothing and, and uh, changing of clothing and, and the cleansing, the bathing? This event was a solemn gathering. So rather than wearing the usual dazzling garb, the high priest just wore plain clothes to reflect the solemnness of the occasion. Dressed like a slave, not like a nobleman. In the presence of God, he was stripped of all dignity, humbly coming before God as nothing more than just another beggar. You see, in this change of clothing, the high priest was representing the common man. He was entering into the Holy of Holies on behalf of his fellow Israelites who needed forgiveness for their sins in order to have an ongoing relationship with God. This common clothing allowed him to identify with the lowliest status of the people whom he was representing, especially since he too was but a common man in the presence of God. So standing in the gap between sinful men and a holy God required him to kind of straddle the fence between two worlds represented by this clothing and ritual. He brought with him the needs of his people. And as our high priest, Jesus Christ also represented us in our weakness. The son of God becomes truly man and learns experientially in his humanity what it means to suffer the effects of sin, despite not having ever committed sin himself. He grew tired weary, sad, hurt, troubled, and grieved just like us. Meaning his representation is not just some kind of pretend sympathy. No, he offered up prayers with loud crying and tears, according to Hebrews 5, 7. So just as Aaron exchanged his noble garments for humble garments in order to identify with his people, so too did our Lord Jesus. Hebrews 2, 17 to 18 says this, Jesus was made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to aid those who are also tempted. Jesus left the luxury of heaven, putting on the linen garments of a slave, as it were, becoming man so that he could represent men. Jesus knows what it's like to live as a man in a sin-cursed world because he did it. Philippians 2, 5 to 8. In fact, Jesus faced temptation in Matthew 4 and he never yielded to sin. That means he actually endured temptation to its fullest extent possible because he never gave into it. So here's Christ Standing between two worlds, the God-man bore the wrath of the Father, serving as a representative in the truest sense of the word in a manner which those Old Testament priests merely foreshadowed. The second thing we want to look at in our text is a pure substitute. The priest was to be a pure substitute. That's verses 5 to 10. Leviticus 16, 5 to 10. Let me read that. He shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Then Aaron shall offer the bull for the sin offering, which is for himself, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. 
Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and make it a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, to send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. So after explaining the preparation required of Aaron on the day of atonement, Moses went on to provide the overview of the animals that were to be used. So once he obtained the bull and a ram for himself, that was in verse three, we saw that, Aaron would then take two goats from the congregation, one to be sacrificed as a sin offering and the other to be sent away as a scapegoat. So what kind of animals were used? What kind of goats were used? The text tells us that they were for a sin offering, which had already been explained by Moses, right? So such a goat was to be without defect. And why did it need to be spotless? because it needed to illustrate a sinless substitute capable of taking upon itself the sin of others. If it had its own sins as represented by blemishes or defects, it would not qualify. A substitute who is himself under judgment cannot serve as a stand-in for you, nor can it give you its perfect life in exchange. He's got his own sins that must be dealt with, but a perfect person who without defect certainly can. Now back to our text. He would offer the bull sacrifice to atone for himself and his family. The fact that a bull was used indicated the immensity of Aaron's sins. You see, the bull was the largest of all the animals that were sacrificed that were ever used. It was only required when it was done on behalf of the entire nation or the high priest himself. It was never used for a common individual. Aaron represented the entire nation. Therefore, any sins in his life were considered even more serious than the average Israelite's sins. And that's similar comparison to what we see today, that teachers in the church are held to a more stricter judgment, James 3.1. So too, the high priests in the nation of Israel were more responsible in the, uh, to God for the position that they held. Aaron's sins were costlier. He's represented his people in a symbolic way, the way that Adam really did. So that first sacrifice was for himself to ensure that he was a pure representative. Now, it would be a shame if I did not try to draw into words the gruesomeness of these sacrifices. You see, all of the sacrifices were bloody affairs. The priests were basically butchers. Using a sacrificial knife, they would puncture the jugular of the animal and slide the knife across the windpipe of the animal. The initial incision would splatter blood all over the place. You see, severing the carotid artery would cause the blood to spray everywhere, all over him and everything else. As he slid the knife across the windpipe, the animal would literally choke on its own blood. This process of cutting the, the trachea generally below the larynx would prevent the animal from making a lot of noise. This process severs the carotid artery, again, preventing new blooded oxygen or oxygenated blood from reaching the brain. Furthermore, the severing of the jugular vein allows the blood to flow more easily, squirting it everywhere. These things bring unconsciousness quickly with death shortly to follow, but it's not like you would think or see in the movies. It's a gruesome, gruesome thing. It takes 30 seconds to a minute till the blood loss or lack of oxygen would eventually kill the animal. Unconsciousness would have happened much sooner, but the, the heart will continue to pump, squirting blood from the carotid artery until there is not enough to pump, dousing everything in this vital life fluid. During this butchery, the animal will be taking giant gasping breaths through their severed windpipe, gargling and coughing blood. It's nothing quiet, and it's nothing quick, it's gruesome. The priest would literally be bathed in blood. So then after he'd done that with the bull, he would bring the two male goats to the entrance of the tabernacle to stand before the Lord. These would be used to atone for the sins of the people. As believers who are far removed from this situation, not only in time, but also in geography and culture, it's easy to get lost in the details of these sacrifices. A goat here, a bull there, a ram for this one, a ram for that, for that one, a burnt offering for here, a sin offering there. And that says nothing of the other days of the year, right? In which the combinations multiplied even more. There were also grain offerings, peace offerings, guilt offerings, using various types of plants and animals, such as sheep and pigeon and fowl. 
But in terms of the day of atonement, there is one common theme underlying all the sacrifices that you cannot afford to miss. These animals were all indications that a substitution was being made on behalf of sinners. When Aaron stood at the front of the tabernacle with the two goats, Leviticus 16.8 says he was to cast lots to decide what to do with them. Casting lots was a means of revealing God's will on a particular matter. The, the word for lot coming from Hebrew is literally just a stony piece of the ground. It refers to a small stone or object taken up from the ground. So on the day of atonement, casting lots was a process in which the high priest shook marked rocks out of a jar in order to determine which goat had been divinely selected for each purpose. One lot would be marked for the Lord and the other would be marked for the scapegoat. Aaron would turn to one goat, draw out a lot and assign the lot's number for the duty of that goat. He would then turn to the other goat and take out the remaining lot and give it its duty. One animal would be the sacrificial goat taking upon itself the penalty of sin, death. The other would be the scapegoat taking upon itself the guilt of sin and removing it by going out into the wilderness where it was left to wander and die. But let me make a few quick notes about those two goats. The goat that was slain, in the way I described earlier, its blood was taken into the holy place where its blood was sprinkled on all the altar and the mercy seat. You see, the lid of the ark had the Ten Commandments in it, and above this was the mercy seat. It literally is called the lid of atonement. And hovering on the sides of the mercy seat were the cherubim, and you would see the Shekinah glory of God dwelling above it. And none of this was seen by the people. They couldn't see this because they couldn't go in to the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest. Now, in order to symbolize this for the people, the second goat was used as a demonstration for the people. He would lay his hands on the goat, the scapegoat, and confess the sins of all the people, and the scapegoat, scapegoat would be driven out of the city, sometimes 10, 20, 40, or 50 miles away. And legend has it that they would oftentimes kill the goat outside the city. And they would kill it outside of the city because they didn't want this sin-cursed thing to carry their sins back into the city, back into the presence of God. So in order to prevent their sins from returning and offending a God again, they would kill it outside the city. And this is the picture of expiation, that the sin is driven away. Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. It is a picture of imputation. He would lay his hands on the head of the scapegoat to symbolize the imputation of sin. It's the scapegoat of our sin being driven out into the wilderness to never be remembered again. Now, again, why all this ritual? Because of sin. And what is sin? Sin is any want of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. Sin is failure. It is lawlessness. It is rebellion, transgression, trespass. It is a stain on man because of his transgression of God's law. It is literally the opposite of righteousness. It's a multifaceted concept, and there are four different words used in Leviticus 16 to describe it. The first is uncleanness. It's a word for pollution. Another word is rebellion. That's the violation of a relationship, estrangement. The third word is iniquity. That's waywardness. It's a reflection of our character, an outward act that is a reflection of an internal nature. And the fourth word, which is used four times, is just the general word for sin. It kind of covers everything. So what's wrong with you? Sin, rebellion, estrangement, pollution, transgression, uncleanness. It could be argued that the most important word in the book is atonement. You see it in our portion for today in verse 6 and then 11 and verse 10. And it occurs 12 more times throughout the rest of this chapter. Atonement. Now, a lot of misunderstanding surrounds the concept, but know this. Atonement is made to God. The one who Aaron is ministering to on this day in the most holy place was not the people, but God himself. It was God's wrath that needed placated. God's anger 
is the natural response to sin on account of his holiness. He cannot look upon it and be in its presence. That's what needed to be dealt with. So while the sacrifice, while the blood, because life is in the blood, a life is being offered. Substitution is a life for a life. There are many people who claim to be Christian today who don't understand that principle of substitution. Or even worse, there are Bible teachers and theologians who believe it's not even in the Bible. Well, they certainly haven't read this chapter. The principle is this, the soul that sins must die. And the only thing that can atone is the death of a victim. And the picture of the scapegoat is an amazing picture of the reality that God removes our sins. He will again have compassion on us. He casts all our sins into the depths of the sea. You see, we cannot have this without substitution. Hebrews 8, 12. I will be merciful to their iniquities and remember their sins no more. Now I'd be ashamed here if I didn't make one point. Um, All this, the high priest, the animal sacrifices, the goat, it all symbolizes this important reality, substitution. It's oftentimes in your English Bibles translated as the preposition for. It means on behalf of, for the sake of. It's the one primary word that's oftentimes used in the atoning death of Jesus Christ. It's used in Romans 5, verse 6. Paul says, Christ died for the ungodly. 1 John 3, 16, he laid down his life for us. John 15, 13, Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. All of these statements point to the most fundamental aspect of atonement by substitution. Truth be told, the need for a substitute shouldn't surprise you. God's justice demands that every sin, every capital offense against him must be punished accordingly. And because the fall of Adam cast all men into guilt and sin, that's Romans 5, 12, every man is rightly due this punishment. The reality, of course, is that God is a perfect judge with perfect evidence against each and every one of us. That means that justice will be carried out to the fullest extent of the law. Unbelievers suppose that, well, if God exists, he's this nice kind of Santa Claus figure, he's good, so, you know, he'll kind of overlook their sins. But of course, it's just the opposite. The fact that God is a good judge is precisely why he will not overlook sin. All this to say, if if you and I are going to escape punishment, we need someone who is willing and able to trade lives with us, allowing God's justice to be enacted on that person in our stead. We need to find someone who can credit us with their perfect life that we haven't lived and can take on the punishment for the sinful life that we have. We need this substitute. The effect of this substitution, the bull on account of the high priest in Aaron's day, the scapegoat and the goat sacrificed for atonement, all result in one thing, cleanness, cleanness. They were made clean. If any of them had become unclean so as to be denied communion with God and his people, they were made clean so that they might go up to the tabernacle and and be amongst the people of God. That very morning, everyone was regarded as unclean before God. They all approached the tabernacle in penitent sorrow on account of their uncleanness. However, after the sacrifice, after the driving of the way of the scapegoat, everyone was clean again, and there was much rejoicing. Every year within the four days after the Day of Atonement, the people were so clean, they kept what's called the Feast of Tabernacles. Jewish rabbis historically have said that no man has ever seen sorrow who has not seen the day of atonement. And no man has seen gladness who has not witnessed the merriment and delight of the people during the Feast of Tabernacles. The people themselves were made to be a clean people. And I got to lay great stress on this because unless you yourself are purged and purely clean, everything that you do is defiled in the sight of God. You see, when a man was unclean, if he went into a tent and sat upon anything in it, that was unclean. 
If a friend touched his garment, he was rendered unclean. The man himself needed first to be delivered from impurity, and it is precisely the same in your case. Your very person by nature is defiled and obnoxious to the justice of God. In body and soul, you are by nature altogether an unclean thing. All of your righteousness is filthy rags. You yourself need to be washed, renewed. It is a far simpler thing to remove outward stains than it is to purge the very substance of human nature. Yet this is what was purged on the day of atonement in God's people, which is only accomplished by our redeeming Lord. Now to move on to our third point. First, we saw that we needed a clean representative. We need a a pure substitute. And now we come to the final portion of our text this morning. We need a flawless intercessor, a flawless intercessor. Let me read that. It's verses 11 to 13. Then Aaron shall offer the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself and make atonement for himself and for his household. And he shall slaughter the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself. He shall take a fire pan full of coals from upon the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense and bring it inside the veil. He shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the ark of the testimony. Otherwise he will die. So again, after giving Aaron an overview of the three animals used on the day of atonement, the bull and the two goats, Moses proceeds to instruct Aaron on the actual steps to take, reiterating his command about the bull offering once again. Moses reminds Aaron that his would be the first animal slaughtered. As a sinful man himself, Aaron needed an account for his own sin before helping others deal with theirs. In Leviticus 4, 4 to 12, the procedure for the sin offering of the bull was explained. And the process was like this. Aaron would lay hands on the head of the bull then slaughter the animal, pouring some of its blood in front of the veil of the Holy of Holies, pouring some of its blood on the corners of the altar of incense and pouring blood on the base of the bronze altar. He would then remove the fat from the bull, burning these fatty portions on the animal, uh, of the animal on the altar of sacrifice, setting aside the remainder of the bull to be burned outside the camp later on. Once that was done, Aaron would take some of the coals from the fire on the bronze altar and put them in a fire pan. He would grab two handfuls of incense and enter into the Holy of Holies. He had to take very finely ground incense so that uh, when it was burned, it would make a lot of smoke. Now you might be wondering, why does he need a lot of smoke in there? This smoke was to be there as a filter, to veil the presence of God. Even after all of this, he wasn't good enough to go into the presence of God in plain sight. The smoke was so all-encompassing, it was nearly impossible to see. You see, even the high priest couldn't be in the unmediated or unfiltered presence of God. So the smoke was a barrier for his own life. When you get to the point, this point of the book of Leviticus, Moses assumes that you've read the previous 15 chapters. So you'd be more familiar with the practice of burning incense in verses 12 and 13 and what that symbolized. So let me summarize that for you briefly. Both the bronze altar and the altar of incense were regular aspects of everyday worship of the priestly sacrifices in Israel. The bronze altar was the main altar located in the court outside the tent, which is where all the animal sacrifices were to be burned. When Israelites would bring animals to the priests working in the tabernacle, they would burn the animals up as an offering to God according to you know, the intended type of sacrifice. Thus, this altar was the place for an individual's restoration. The altar of incense was a smaller altar located inside the tent, which was just outside the Holy of Holies. And upon these, he would burn the incense. Strict instructions were given for mixing the correct spices for the incense. So it'd be a fragrant aroma to God. And just like the daily burnt offerings, Aaron was instructed to burn incense on this altar every morning and every evening. So what was the purpose of this altar and burning incense every morning, every evening? I mean, consider the atoning work, performing, which was performed at the tabernacle, right? A, a worshiper would bring the animal sacrifice, the priest slaughters it, burns it on the bronze altar, burns this incense, and then what? Does the worshiper just kind of walk away and carry on about their life as usual? No. 
in accordance with the sacrifice, there would need to be a petition to God, the prayer of the worshiper for forgiveness and prayers by the priest on behalf of the worshiper. At the tabernacle, just as the average Israelite could not approach God directly to offer a sacrifice, neither could he approach God directly in prayer. He needed an intercessor. He needed a mediator. The priest then would not only offer a sacrifice on behalf of the worshiper, he would likewise petition God for their forgiveness on their behalf. The daily priest would bring the prayers of the people of God as near to God as they could, which was just outside the Holy of Holies, outside of the veil. Then you see the, the rising of the smoke from the incense symbolized the priest's prayers raising up on behalf of the people to the very face of God. This is the work of intercession, a critical aspect of atonement. And it was depicted by the, the daily burning of incense. On the day of atonement, the intercessory work was even nearer to God than the daily burning of, of incense. Aaron brought the people's prayers past the veil into the Holy of Holies and burned the incense there. So after obtaining the fire pan filled with hot coals from the bronze altar, along with the handfuls of the spices and the incense, Aaron was to put the incense on the coals inside the Holy of Holies. The smoke would immediately rise up, filling the room and, and this umbrella or canopy, this protective smoke, again, vital for Aaron's very protection, right? As it says in 1613, it needed to, to go up before the very face of God, symbolizing that God was hearing the prayers of his people. I mean, it's hard to imagine how the Israelites would have felt knowing that incense was being brought into the Holy of Holies since this was the absolute closest to God that anyone could ever get, their closest that their prayers could ever get to God was inside that veil. And there would be few parallels for seeing their prayers symbolically reach up to God in this smoke. You see, the people would not be able to see what Aaron was doing in the Holy of Holies, but they would be able to see the smoke of the burning incense rising up from the tent. What a comforting sight the high priest could bring their prayers immediately into the presence of God, reassuring them that they were in, indeed heard by their creator. Now, this is where our text becomes eminently applicable. And I can't go any further without going here. 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And this is what Jesus does. He prayed his high priestly prayers, we see in John 17, on, on our account, before offering the sacrifice of himself. And then what does Hebrews tell us? Hebrews 10, 19 to 22. It says, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to, the, to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. It says, we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Louis Burkhoff said, the intercessory prayer of Christ is a prayer that never fails. As long as our high priest lives, he makes intercession on our behalf. I mean, imagine how the Israelites would have fell every time their high priest died. I mean, who was there to make intercession now? But our Lord has a greater priesthood. And by this, he is a priest forever. And guess what? Our priest, although he died, he rose again. And his priesthood was not terminated because it was of a superior order. And guess what? Today he lives and today he intercedes. I wonder how many of us take for granted whenever you pray, whether or not God hears your prayers. You see, the people in the old covenant, they couldn't even pray to God directly. And yet we just kind of fickly pray to God. Certainly God is omniscient, right? He knows everything that you're saying or that you're thinking, but there's a big difference between him knowing your prayers and hearing your prayers. God's holiness means that sinful man needs an intercessor 
And Aaron would have been understood, he would have understood that very well as he entered into the Holy of Holies. I mean, after all, even he needed an intercessor. But what if there was an intercessor who didn't need this covering of smoke in order to be in the presence of God? What if this intercessor had no defilements of his own that would obstruct his priestly ministry? And yet, what if this intercessor still burned incense continually before the face of God? So we don't need to leave this in the realm of wishful thinking. The Lord Jesus Christ serving as our high priest in the very presence of God provides such intercessory work for us. So having ascended to the right hand of the Father, Jesus presently offers continual incense, as it were, which provides a never-ending canopy of intercession, of protection, which allows sinful men to be in the very presence of God. So unlike Aaron, Jesus does not need protection. Jesus is perfectly holy and qualified to be in the presence of the Father. Instead, he does it to provide protection for us forever. So not only are we clothed in Christ's righteousness, but we're also engulfed in his prayers. So let it be known. If you are among his people, the elect, you have a high priest who speaks on your behalf. When Satan accuses you, Christ intercedes. The indictment, over. When your faith is faltering, Christ intercedes. Your faith is reinforced. When you don't pray as you should and don't know what words to say, Christ intercedes and your prayer is carried to the very ears of the Father. His intercession is greater than your failures. Those for whom Christ died are those for whom he intercedes. And those for whom he intercedes have the greatest hope of all, their ultimate salvation. What a savior. So what have we seen? We've seen we need a, a pure priest, a clean representative, a flawless mediator, that we cannot draw near to the high king of heaven except along the blood-stained way of death. Friends, a pure and a holy God cannot endure you as you are. He cannot have fellowship with you as a sinner or with those who are rendered unclean by their sin for it would be inconsistent with his very nature to do so. On the other hand, sinful men cannot have fellowship with their God. Their evil nature could not even endure the fire of his holiness. Hebrews 12, 29, for our God is a consuming fire. I mean, who could dwell with that devouring fire? with that kind of purging? Who among us could endure those everlasting burnings as a result of our sin? What is that devouring fire and what are those everlasting burnings but the justice and holiness of God? A guilty soul would perish if it were possible to even draw near to God apart from a mediator and his atonement. The fire of God's nature must consume the stubble of our nature so long as there is any sin in us. You see, the difficulty of accessing God outlined in our text, how hard it was even to follow these rituals and that hardly pictures the difficulty for a sinful man to be, to be made right with a holy God, a difficulty which only a divine method can remove. So what's pictured here? Two things are pictured here. One thing is the picture of the removal of Israel's sin. Israel's sin is being literally carried out into the wilderness, out of their sight, the scapegoat is a picture of the removal of sin out of the middle of Israel's camp and out into the wilderness. But it's also a picture, isn't it, of what sin deserves? Sin deserves being cut off from God, sent out into the wilderness, cut off from God's presence. And so this whole passage shows the cleansing of God's people and the, the cleansing of the tabernacle was done through blood and through riddance. Both, of course. Ultimately, as a Christian, we cannot read this passage without contemplating how it is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who in his own body on the tree bore our sins outside the camp. There was a reason that Jesus had to die outside the camp, in the wilderness, on Golgotha. Paul speaks of that in Romans 3.25. He was a propitiatory sacrifice for us. Through blood sacrifice, Jesus Christ fulfills the picture of Leviticus 16. 
Hebrews 9, 11 to 12 says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And doesn't that remind us, my friends, that you cannot find forgiveness anywhere than Jesus Christ and his cross? Only at the cross, only in Jesus can forgiveness for sins be found. So know this, the Old Testament ritual, the ceremonial way of dealing with sins, they were not effective for their forgiveness of sins, but pointed it forward to the one thing that was effective for the forgiveness of sins, the bloody death of Jesus Christ. Can we find forgiveness if we look anywhere else? No. Hebrews 10, 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But Jesus has done it. And so Jesus in his own death on the cross fulfilled this glorious picture, this glorious type, this glorious foreshadowing, this glorious symbol. But his death also fulfilled that picture of the scapegoat, of riddance. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There you see Paul speaking of the Lord kind of laying hands on Jesus as our scapegoat and putting our iniquities on him to carry them away. And at the cross, don't we see the cry of the scapegoat, Jesus Christ, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the language of the scapegoat who had been taken into the wilderness and forsaken. He's the sin bearer of his people, removing his people's sins, the due penalty of it, and expressing in that abandonment and in that riddenness what we all deserve to experience. And so we see cleansing through the blood and through riddance being fulfilled in Jesus' atonement, Jesus' abandonment, Jesus' bloodshed, Jesus' dereliction. And I can't help but when I read Leviticus 16 or think about this, of thinking of that hymn, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a, a crimson stain and he washed it white as snow. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you today, Lord, just reminded of our unworthiness, Lord, humbled by the reality of your great holiness. Lord, we pray that we would not take for granted the fact that we can pray to you anytime because of the great and mighty work of our high priest, Jesus Christ. Or maybe we approach our prayer lives differently. Or maybe we consider our own relationship with you differently, what it costs, what it looks like. Lord, the people of Israel had nothing but a hope, nothing but a type, nothing but a shadow. And Lord, we've seen the substance of it. Lord, may that change and invigorate the way we live our lives. May it strengthen us in faith. May it prepare us as we continually worship you every day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from our guest speaker. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Please note, law prohibits the unauthorized copying or distributing of this audio file. Requests for permission to copy or distribute are made in writing to the Grace Life Pulpit. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.